Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow and this week's guest is Sir Chris Brandt. Chris was born in Cardiff and lived in Spain as a child before returning to the United Kingdom. After reading English at Oxford, he then studied theology and was ordained in the Church of England. He spent time in Latin America and worked as a curate before deciding to leave the church and move into politics. Chris was elected MP for Ronda in 2001 and he's held this seat for Labour ever since along with a variety of front bench and committee posts in both government and opposition. During his parliamentary career, Chris has earned a reputation as someone unafraid to speak truth to power. As a vocal critic of both News International and Vladimir Putin, but he also enjoys cross-party collaboration and he was given an award for civility in politics in 2022. Chris is also a big fan of parliamentary process, he will happily nerd out on a point of order, and he's just published a book on the subject called Code of Conduct. He strongly believes that when parliamentary standards fall, public trust wears thin. Let's find out more. So Chris Brandt, you've led a very interesting life. There's far too much that we can really talk about today. But let's begin on Spain. Now, um, did you enjoy living there? And did this experience in any way shape your worldview? I loved living in Spain. I love going to Spain. There's a little bit of me that still feels I'm a bit Spanish. I love speaking Spanish. And my parents met in Spain when dad was working there in the summer months in a hotel and learned Spanish. And my mum was a makeup artist at the BBC. She went out to Spain on holiday. That's how they met. And then after I was born, we spent the whole summer there as well. And then we went back when I was seven and till I was 12. It was just a really important part of seeing life. It was also my first political experience. Because I remember seeing the 
Guardia Civil with their big capes and those kind of Darth Vader hats, patent leather tricon hats, in the mist with submachine guns outside Carabanchel, which was the political prisoners' place on the way to our supermarket that we went to every day. So that was my first political memory of what a dictatorship looked like. And I had my first job when I was 11. I went every Saturday, I worked in the bean shop and sold beans. Well, even before that, you were a very academic boy, but you also got the acting bug. Did you ever consider a career on stage? Um, I did, but I don't think anybody else considered it for me. I acted in the National Youth Theatre. My first production was in Bilbao, uh, where I was at school there, and I played the captain of the guard in The Emperor's New Clothes. This is a very multicultural start, isn't it? I mean... Uh, your your acting experience was not in English but in Spanish, all of which kind of impact into how you see the world. Uh, yes, I think I'm quite a varied tapestry. <laughs> <laughs> and some bits of it I like and some bits of it I don't like. I mean, some bits of myself I like and some bits of myself I don't like. Well, that sounds very worrying. I think one of the things I've learned as I've got older in Parliament in particular is that you just have to accept that sometimes you will get things wrong. There's nothing more mortifying than completely lousing up in the commons. And you think the whole world is watching you. And of course, only about five people are. And you just have to accept that sometimes you make mistakes. Lousing up on stage would be just as bad, wouldn't it? When I was at Oxford, I was in Romeo and Juliet. I played Mercutio. And um, I had glandular fever. And in the final act, Juliet turns to Tybalt's body and says, Tybalt in thy bloody shroud. And we hadn't realized till the dress rehearsal that our Tybalt was playing a guard in this scene. So I had to put on Tybalt's sweaty tights and lie on the catapult pretending to be Tybalt because I died in act three. And um, I turned over in my sleep every night. Bodies aren't meant to do that. I think that's the worst version of corpsing in uh, drama. Well, you got into the National Youth Theatre, where your contemporaries included Daniel Craig. I think you must have been more talented than you're pretending. Um, I, so Daniel was a bit younger than me. My best friends, I suppose, were people like Doug Hodge, who's very well known for The Great and loads of other shows, and won a Tony for his performance in La Cage Folle, a uh, really wonderful actor, and Nathaniel Parker, people like that. We went on tour in Europe. We did Richard II. I played O'Merle, Thou Weeps, my tender-hearted cousin, which meant I had to cry every night. And I can only cry out of one eye because I had an operation when I was a child. So I had to lean towards the audience. So it was my downstage eyes. So everybody could see that I had managed to cry. No, I don't think I was a great actor. Um, I've got a, an actor's voice, maybe. But ending up as an MP, surely is a great act. Well, Glenda Jackson, who I knew and I wrote a biography of, she claimed that Parliament was like theatre, but under-rehearsed and poorly lit. <laughs> um, and there's, a, there's an element of truth to that, but you have to write your own lines. I mean, that's the other different thing, of course. You're not uh, normally performing to somebody else's script. But I also think that in politics, that there is an element of performance about politics, just as there is, you know, when I was a priest, there is about standing in a the pulpit. There's an element of performance. But if you're inauthentic, I think voters can smell you out. So if the performance outwits the content, you're in trouble. Completely. Yeah. And there's a great song by Shirley Bass. My mother looked after Shirley Bassey's wigs. So I... So well, what, I what an amazing undertaking. <laughs> yes. Though when I mentioned this to Shirley Bassey, she said to me, do you think, young man, you should mention wigs to an octogenarian and turned on her heels and marched off, which was very upsetting for me. But 
the point I was going to make was that Shirley Bassey has this great song, The Performance of My Life. And sometimes in politics, you know that there are moments which you really have to deliver both the authenticity, the right script, the right song and the right emotion. Did this ever happen to you? Yeah, I think one of those moments was over Owen Patterson. The Standards Committee, which I chaired, we had decided that Owen Patterson had been engaged in an egregious case of paid lobbying, which has been banned in Parliament since 1695. We thought that we were going to suspend him for 30 days, which might mean there would be a by-election. But Boris Johnson and his government threw everything at changing the rules at the very last minute, specifically to protect their mate. And I just knew that I, I wanted to try and win every single person who was in the chamber for the debate. And you, so then you do have to school yourself. Um, one MP said to me, uh, Tory MP, Mark Fletcher, who was on the committee, he said, um, Chris, just be very careful tomorrow because you can be 80% great and 20% shit. And we don't want the 20% shit tomorrow. Well, what foxes me is how Boris Johnson, who was notorious enough already, how this didn't become a much bigger story. I think it was the beginning of unravelling the relationship between a lot of Tory MPs and, and their leader, because it, it was just a preposterous thing to do. And of course, they won the vote by 18 votes, 250 to 232. But the next day, or two days later, Jacob Rees-Mogg had to come to the House and say, oh, terribly sorry, got it wrong. And by that time, Owen Paterson had gone. And so we all marched forward. Not everybody will know what offence... Owen Paterson had actually committed. We call it paid lobbying or paid advocacy. He was paid by two food companies in Ireland, several hundred thousand pounds, and he was lobbying government ministers and officials on their behalf to get contracts. And that, to my mind, is straightforward corruption. Very grubby. Very grubby. And as I say, banned for a very, very long time. And the weirdest thing was he, he kept on defending himself right to the bitter end. He kept on saying he'd done nothing wrong and he'd been completely vindicated and all of this. But the worst bit of all, in a sense, was every previous report from the Standards Committee has gone through the House without amendment. But the government supported an amendment, which basically would have let him off the hook. And that was changing the rules at the very last moment in a disciplinary process for a named individual. That is the definition of a banana republic. That is corruption. Yeah, completely. Indeed. Top to bottom. And 250 Tory MPs voted for it. We've rather skipped a lot of your life to this point, not the least of which was your home life had its challenges. You lived with the school chaplain and his family for a year. Did it, I don't know, play a part in your decision to train as a priest? Well, the reason it happened was because mum and dad got divorced during my A-level year. In fact, slap bang in the middle of my A-levels. But my mum was alcoholic, which was what had led to Crumbs. the problem. And dad had left home, which was good because they were getting very cross and angry with each other all the time. And, and mum was often in no fit state to cook or wash or anything, or wash herself even. And I took her through DTs, you know, withdrawal symptoms several times and she would fit and things like that. And so in the last year, I just couldn't stay at home. Mum was in hospital for some of that time in a psychiatric hospital. And the suggestion was that I would go and live with Sam and Margaret Salter. Sam was the chaplain at school. I was at Cheltenham College and his wife, Margaret. They were an absolutely adorable, wonderful couple. Their daughter, who I think of as my surrogate sister, is Rebecca Salter, who's the first female elected president of the Royal Academy. And Sam and Margaret taught me lots of wonderful things about being spiritually versatile, being able to adapt to the circumstance in which you are. And he was never a fundamentalist in his Christianity, and nor was I. Did living with an ordained man, the chaplain of the school, 
But did it play a part in your decision to train as a priest yourself? Yes, I think so. And when I arrived at Oxford on the first Sunday, I went to church, which is not what all students <laughs> go do on their first Sunday. So there were two things, I think, happening at the same time. One was that I felt I'd managed to survive a really tough teenage years, partly because a lot of people had given me support, including three wonderful spinster sisters, my grandmother's cousins, the Gracies, and everybody who gave me support was in the church. Um, so I felt I owed something back. And also because I felt I'd survived without going totally doolally or collapsing because I had a, an element of personal strength that I thought was mine to hold in trust and, and to do something with. Do you think your time as a curate has made you a good constituency MP and do you like this part of the job? I love that part of the job. It's very similar. A curate is somebody who has the cure of souls. They have the responsibility for everybody in their patch. And it's exactly the same as an MP. So if I go into Morrison's today in Porth in the Ronda, it's exactly the same as when I went into Tesco's in High Wycombe, where I was the curate. Everybody wants to talk to you. Everybody wants to share something with you. And you are there at some of the most intimate moments in people's lives. And do you think that made you a good constituency MP? I think it... it, it I, I'm never very good at judging whether I'm good at anything. <laughs> we'll go back to the thing I said earlier about there's bits of me that are good and bits of me that are bad. Well, that's I, like us all. I'm diligent. I believe in it as a key part of the job. And it's it's the kind of bread and butter of doing the job. And there's such a... Sometimes somebody will come to see you in your office or they'll email you at three o'clock in the morning with somebody they would never tell anybody else. And it's a moment when they're in real trouble. And you you have the responsibility and the opportunity to be able to help them. That's that is that is a joy. You described yourself as a proper little Tory. So far you haven't told me anything which suggested anything of the sort. But when you first started at Oxford University. It's true. You know, when I left school, my school was, you know, public school. I think nearly everybody at Cheltenham College was a Tory. I mean, it should also be said that I also had girlfriends, and I don't have girlfriends these days. I have a husband, and so a lot of things have changed in my life. Uh, that is I, quite a change, isn't it? That is quite a change, or a discovery. So mm. I put both of these things in the same sort of place, which is I discovered the things that I really care about. I hate powerlessness. That's the thing that really drives me wild, is feeling powerless myself or other people feeling powerless. And, Can and give me an example. Uh, so as part of my training to be ordained, I went to Latin America. I spent three months in a shantytown in Lima in Peru, where there was a um, curfew on at the time. There was a lot of terrorism, very difficult. And then I was six months in Argentina. Just So this was very recently after the dictatorship in Argentina. And seeing the powerlessness of the women of the square, of the, the May Square, um, who'd lost their children during the dictatorship and knowing friends who'd been tortured, that really turned me politically and it, it inspired me with anger and fury and determination to change the world. Those are the ingredients which brought about that coalition between priests and socialists. Yeah, this turned me into a socialist having been a Tory. And I should say the word socialist, I'm very happy to use. But it means... Uh, but you as, weren't elected a socialist. You mean as an MP? Yeah. Uh, I think the Labour Party is a social democrat party. I were part of the big socialist family in the world. But in the words of Humpty Dumpty, when I use a word, it means precisely what I choose it to mean. 
no more and no less. I mean, there are lots of different ways of being a socialist. This is a very elastic condition for so solid a person as a British politician. I think elasticity is a good thing in politics, not a bad thing. But the reason I joined the Labour Party was because I went to the funeral of a young boy who'd been set fire to by the police, by Pinochet's police in Chile. And the police arrived and the army arrived with water cannons and tear gas. And the tear gas canisters said on them, made in the UK. And so I brought one of those back to the UK and I had questions because we weren't meant to be selling that kind of equipment to Chile. And I wrote to John Patton, and not John Patton, Chris Chris Patton, Hmm. who was the overseas development minister. He never replied. I wrote to Simon Hughes, who said, write to Chris Patton. Hmm. And I wrote to George Fawkes, who was the Labour shadow overseas development person. And he said, come to the Commons and we'll talk about it. And we got questions asked. And that's when I joined the Labour Party. You were elected MP for Rhonda in 2001, after first standing as a candidate in Wickham. Are you happy this is how it worked out, that your seat is in, in Wales? Well, I was born in Cardiff. My brother's called Rodri, my father's called Rhys. Um, and I feel I've been enormously blessed in, in becoming the MP for the Rhonda. I, I'm not a Rhonda boy. I wasn't born there. But I like to think of myself as the Rhonda's boy. But you'd think, actually, that that would be quite a, a hump to get over that actually a lot of local people would be very resentful that you're an incomer. Well, I mean, lots of people think I'm English. Um, so I hope that they just judge me according to what I do rather than necessarily according to my accent. You know, my home is in Porth in the Rhonda, and it was very striking during COVID in particular how important home became both for me and for my husband. Tell me about the first motion you tabled as an MP. It shows an early interest in the process of democracy one that's grown with time? Yes. The very first early day motion I tabled said that this house calls for a wholly or substantially elected second chamber. In other words, effectively abolishing the Lords and making it elected. And you may recall at the time, this is in 2001, there was a a row going on in the Labour Party about what percentage of the House of Lords should be elected. Derry Irvin suggested it should be 8%, which was just laughable. And unfortunately, we've still not managed to reform the House of Lords. I hope that's one of the things that will come. And I know some people think all these constitutional issues, which is in essence what my book is about, are kind of irrelevant and people don't send emails to you about it. But actually, it's about the use of power. What's more important than how power gets used or abused in the political system? You've recently joined the Labour front bench, but before that, you were chair of the Commons Committee on Standards. Can you explain to a listener, not steeped in the parliamentary process, what you were actually responsible for. So the House of Commons used to have a committee called the Committee on Standards and Privileges, one committee only constituted of MPs. And it was there to look at, first of all, whether an MP had done something naughty, and if so, how to deal with them. And secondly, if somebody had engaged in a contempt of Parliament, or for that matter, if a minister, for instance, had lied to Parliament. So that would be a contempt of Parliament as well. We divided the committee a few years ago into the Standards Committee, which has seven lay members on it and seven MPs. And that considers if the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, who is an independent person, investigates an MP, finds that they've breached the Code of Conduct, the Commissioner sends that report then to the committee and the committee decides, A, has there been a breach? And B, what the sanction should be. So, for instance, in relation to Chris Pincher, the Conservative Deputy Chief Whip, who was found to have groped two young men at the Carlton Club, we found that that had been a serious breach of the Commons and we recommended that he be suspended. 
And that has now gone through. And so we've got a by-election going on. Similarly, Owen Patterson, another case, and Andrew Bridge and, and, and many others. When you first took this post, you were told it would be quite a quiet gig. I think that's the quote. But that's not how it turned out. How many MPs have been sanctioned in this parliament, I mean, i.e. since the last election in 2019? Well, the number keeps on growing. And this, this is one of the fundamental questions I ask in the book, Code of Conduct, which is, is this the worst parliament in our history? Because we've now had 22 MPs. It was 21 when I wrote the book. By the time we get to the paperback edition, it might be 23 or 24 MPs who've been suspended for a day or more or have left parliament under a cloud before a report was produced into their misconduct. And that and it's a mi- mixture of things. So there have been cases of sexual harassment of staff. There have been cases of bullying of staff. There have been the paid advocacy we've referred to, using letterhead in an inappropriate way for political campaigning rather than for representing your constituents. So, yes, it's been a pretty tough parliament, and it's not been easy because sometimes MPs have wanted to kick the system rather than kick out the, the rogues. And then there's another bunch of people who have been told off with a slap wrist, like Rishi Sunak recently. And then on top of that, you've got Boris Johnson, of course, who was found to have lied to Parliament. It sounds pretty grim. Well, I looked at the history books and I can find no Parliament that has suspended so many MPs. In the past, what we used to do when somebody did something really bad was we would just chuck them out of Parliament for good. But we only did that to 77 people in more than 200 years. And we've suspended 22 since 2019. And does this worry you? I mean, is that why you wrote your book? I wrote the book because I believe passionately in democratic politics. I hate the idea of powerlessness. I think the way we all exercise our power is being able to elect people and chuck them out of office if we don't think they're doing a good job. And I really worry that at the moment, people's trust, according to all the opinion polls, the trust in politicians is at an all-time low. I know people say, oh, it's always bad. But actually, it's much, much worse now than it has been for a very long time. So I think there are lots of things that we need to do to fix Parliament. We need to stop this revolving door between ministerial office and and going off to a job in the same industry that you've just been regulating. We need to take more power back. We need to take back control for Parliament from the government. And, you know, we, we could do some simple things like you may recall Nadine Dorries for ages and ages and ages said that she was leaving Parliament, hadn't turned up in Parliament for months, hadn't spoken in Parliament for more than a year, hadn't held a surgery for several years. Well, I think if you don't turn up for work, you should be sanctioned. You're describing a very grim situation. It has been grim. It's been genuinely grim. And I think there are lots of people who want to change that. Well, I was going to ask you, are you alone in thinking this? But you say no. No, I think there are lots of people who want to change it. And you you may recall that there was a a big row over the Privileges Committee. I recused myself from sitting on the Privileges Committee that was considering whether Boris Johnson had lied to Parliament because I'd already said on every radio station going and television that anybody would have me that Boris Johnson is a liar and had lied. So I couldn't have done a fair job in adjudicating on that. But I pay tribute to the Tories on that committee who were attacked remorselessly by all sorts of people, including lots of national newspapers, accused of running a witch hunt and a kangaroo court and all of this kind of stuff. So there are genuine, decent people who want Parliament to do a better job. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. 
my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Sticking with the importance of the truth, you want to see more robust rules for correcting the record, especially when an inaccuracy is highlighted by the UK statistics body. Yes, I think it should be axiomatic, especially for a minister, because ministers make decisions. And when they speak to parliament, they're giving the information that backs up the decision that they've made. If they misspeak or get something wrong, they should correct the record. We've had a system since 2007 for doing that. It's quite clever because it means that the original in Hansard in the verbatim record of what's happened in Parliament is corrected as well online. So it's important that they do that swiftly. So for instance, you might say million when you meant billion, or Mm. you might say France when you meant Belgium or whatever. Correct the record simply. But what really irritates me is when somebody says something which is proved categorically to be untrue, The UK Statistics Authority writes to the minister and say, you cannot keep on saying it. It is untrue, as they did repeatedly, both to Rishi Sunak and Suella Braverman and to Boris Johnson. And the minister keeps on repeating it and won't correct the record. I think if a minister does that, that should be on the face of it and at the end of it, a breach of the code of conduct and they should be suspended from the house. But is correcting Hansard really enough? In this digital age, misinformation can be spread extremely quickly and Many people won't even know what Hansard is. No, indeed, at least you're doing that. (laughs) And and actually, normally when there's a correction of the record of something significant, it does get reported. The only time that Boris Johnson corrected the record was when I and Keir Starmer asked Boris Johnson whether Roman Abramovich had been sanctioned by the UK government. And Boris Johnson said yes in the House of Commons. And then the next day had to say, "Uh, oh, no, sorry, actually he hadn't. Now, I presume that's because Abramovich's lawyers got in touch with him to say, um, no, he hasn't been sanctioned. Now he has been sanctioned, in fact. But both of those parts of the story did get well reported. So I think when a prime minister corrects the record, it will get well reported. Nevertheless, the whole thing feels a bit of a shambles. Uh, You know, we should be more careful with our language. I mean, incidentally, I should say I've made mistakes on on occasion as well. So, for instance, I've had to correct the, the record several times. And weirdly, there's not a provision for backbench MPs to do it. There's only a provision for ministers to do it. One of the things, another change I'd like to see is that that provision should be available for all members of the House of Commons. People do make mistakes, and you've accepted that. And you've been open about, you've just been open about your own shortcomings. Do you think we need a cultural shift that politicians could be better at making apologies and the media should be much more understanding when they do. Completely. There's always this thing about U-turns, isn't there? Is a U-turn a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, Well, it's a dreadfully bad thing if you read the Daily Mail. Yes. Well, I I don't. (laughs) And I'm not U-turning on that. Look, I I think that sometimes it's the pig-headedness of the original decision and the stubbornness with which somebody refuses to U-turn that then makes the screeching U-turn look rather inelegant. 
And if you do keep on making U-turns all the time, there's a danger that everybody just gets giddy. But sometimes the Standards Committee has forced people to make apologies and some of them just don't sound genuine. And it is better if it is genuine. Do you think that adversarial encounters contribute to a lack of public engagement in politics? I hate Prime Minister's questions. Uh, we love them. Yes, I know. Oh, and, and six million people watch it every week. So, mm. you know, it's a big part of the political debate, um, mostly from people who are already aligned with one political party or other, I suspect. The awful thing is that in both television and radio, it brings politics low. I know. But I think we could do... So there's some simple things we could do. I hate the bit where one side of the house tries to shout so loud that the leader of the other side can't speak. We should ban that. And the speaker should just chuck people out. You should stop saying, you'll be going for a cup of tea soon. Chuck you should just chuck out. people out. Putting people opposite each other to shout at each other is not a clever thing to do. Well, actually, most of the debates in the House of Commons aren't like that at all. Um, but obviously, the stuff that people enjoy is the theatre and the drama of the shouting and the argy-bargy. But you could just take it down a notch. And there's another thing you could do. You could say, Instead of having open questions, so the, the Prime Minister, unlike all other question sessions, it just says, what are your engagements for today? Which means that you can ask any old question, whatever. It means that you don't really have informed debate. You don't have follow-up from the questions. And so you don't learn more at the end of Prime Minister's questions than you did at the beginning of the day. So I think there are simple things that you could do to change the format that would improve it. It's clear that there are elements of Westminster politics that approve of you very strongly. You won the Civility in Politics Award in 2022. Funnily enough, the day I got the Civility in Politics Award, I bumped into Dominic Raab. <laughs> and Dominic Raab said to me, well, that's a joke, you getting the Civility in Politics Award. You're the most aggressive person in the chamber. I said, <laughs> it's the Civility in Politics Award, not the Servility in Politics Award, Dominic. And as events transpired, that proved ironic in itself. Um, I'm not particularly tribal, and the book is not particularly tribal. It tries not to be partisan. I, I mean, obviously, I'm a Labour MP. I just want politics to work. I want democratic politics to work because I've lived in countries which have dictators. I've been on the border in Ukraine watching Russian snipers shooting at Ukrainian forces. I know what authoritarian regimes are like, and the only alternative to that is proper democracy. Well, let's move on then to Nadine Dorries, because her now infamous absenteeism and indeed the protracted resignation process through which she went, what could be done to avoid something similar happening in the future? Well, there are two weird things about Nadine Dorries, maybe more, in fact, but about the process that we went through. Um, so Nadine Dorries stopped being the culture secretary and then just didn't turn up in Parliament anymore. She kept on writing books, she kept on doing television programmes, but she didn't turn up in Parliament, she didn't speak in Parliament, apparently she didn't do any work in her constituency either. And I think there's just a point at which we should have the same rule in Parliament as you have for councillors, which is that if you're not there for six months, you can only carry on if the House carries a motion saying there are extenuating circumstances, like you're ill or something like that. So I think we should have that rule. But the second thing is we have this most bizarre system. You will know this well, John. You can't resign as an MP, formally speaking. You have to apply for an office of profit under the Crown, like the Chiltern Hundreds, hmm. so that you become the Crown Steward and Bailiff of the Chiltern Hundreds. Well, that's Which, of a course, nonsense. contributes to the complete confusion of the electorate as to what on earth's going on. Completely. So she said she'd resigned with immediate effect. 
but she hadn't sought to be the crown steward. And consequently, she went on for months and months and months. Now, I know she's a notorious publisher of fiction, but the biggest fiction yet is her understanding of the words with immediate effect, because it <laughs> took several months. And lots of people in the constituency were getting more and more angry. So I think we should just have a simpler system, which is you, if you want to resign, you write to the speaker and say, I would like to resign. And then it's done and dusted. You may recall there was another issue about this, which I write about in the book, which is Jerry Adams wanted to resign as an MP. But he obviously isn't exactly a monarchist. So he didn't want to be crown steward. <laughs> um, but George Osborne just decided, well, you've said you want to resign, so you're going to be anyway. I mean, what will they make of this in history? Well, quite. And we still have by-elections for hereditary peers in the House of Lords. I mean, there's lots of bits in Parliament that we do in an unnecessarily antiquated, anachronistic way. And just some of that, I hope, we will change in the next few years and probably in the next Parliament. But the thing you most want to change is the power of a majority government. You've gone so far as to describe it as an elective dictatorship. Why? We have a system, to quote ABBA, which is the winner takes it all, the loser standing small. Once you've won a general election, or once you've become leader of the party with, uh, with a majority in the House of Commons, as long as you keep your majority, you can do anything. You decide when Parliament sits, how long it sits for, what it's going to debate, how long it's going to have for each debate, what amendments get considered in a vote, every single penny of expenditure, even when we go on holiday, literally everything. And you can even prorogue Parliament so Parliament doesn't sit at all. Um, now, that is clearly bonkers. And it means that what happens on, on days like, for instance, we had a day recently for the National Security Bill, where because the government decided to allow a very short period of time to consider amendments, even though the amendments list was longer than the original bill, and because they decided to make government ministers put in additional speeches or statements on largely irrelevant subjects, we had less than a minute to consider each amendment. That isn't doing the job properly. Now, I think if you had a committee of the House elected by the whole House deciding what gets decided on what days, they would have said, no, that needs a full day on, on its own and we would do a better job. And what we rely on at the moment is the Commons does scrutiny terribly because we say, oh, it'll all get sorted in the House of Lords. What's the difference between the Commons and the Lords? The Lords decides its own order paper. The Commons, it's decided by the government. If Labour gets into power at the next election, do you think that Keir Starmer will look at some of these issues raised in your book, or any of them indeed? Well, I hope so. I'm a member of, the, of Keir Starmer's front bench team now, so I have to be a bit careful about what I say. But I think Keir likes doing things properly. He prosecuted the case against Boris Johnson over lying to Parliament very, very clearly and effectively. And I think that's because he, you know, there's a correct way of doing things. And he's a lawyer by training. He believes in the rule of law. And that's why I hope that we will come forward with a profound series of changes to the way we do politics. We can't just carry on with business as usual. We've got to do it in a different way in the future. And we can't have all these discretionary funds where ministers decide £10 million goes to this constituency, £17 million goes to this constituency, because it's one of their mates. You've taken on powerful opponents in the course of your career, not least Rupert Murdoch. Did you ever worry that this could have consequences, that he might seek revenge down the road? 
Well, it's already happened. When I was on the Culture Committee in 2003, I asked Rebecca Brooks and Andy Coulson, who were the then editors of The Sun and the News of the World, whether they'd ever paid a police officer for information, which is, of course, a criminal offence. And they said yes. And six months later, they tried to do me over in the national press uh, very successfully. And later on that year, a journalist from the Mail came up to me and he said, we're all taking bets on whether you'll commit suicide by Christmas. Um, and then later, Was that a joke? No, it wasn't, I don't think. And of course, but they hacked my phone. And later, I was one of the people who took the case against Murdoch for phone hacking. And yes, of course, sometimes you have to worry. But what's the point of an MP if, you're not, if you've not got any courage in your boots? Yeah, but the, the personal toll must be fairly heavy. It can be, though, ironically, I think, because all of that happened back in 2003... I kind of think there's not much more they can write about me now. I mean, that's not an invitation for them to write anything <laughs> they want. But, you know, I mean, my my sex life was written all over the Mail on Sunday. Um, I'm not depressive by nature. I'm very fortunate in my mental health. But it was the only time that I've seriously considered taking my own life. Well, looking at the happier side of the page... Are you happy with your new appointment as Shadow Minister for Creative Industries and Digital? Is this an area that really interests you? I'm absolutely over the moon. It's one of the biggest sectors in UK business. You know, it's everything, film production, advertising, marketing, publishing, IT, video games, TV, radio, a a vast um, area of, um, and I would add floristry, incidentally, which is a £2 billion industry every year. Um, it's it's one of the areas of the biggest growth. We've had bigger growth in that, five times bigger growth in that sector than in any other part of the economy of the last few years. If we want to build growth for the future, it's definitely going to be the powerhouse for that. And I and you know one thing I'm really sick of is well actually two things. One, people saying that jobs in the creative industries aren't real jobs. They certainly are, and I hate this snobbishness about it. But the second bit is we've got to have proper career progression for people in the creative industries. Why is it, if if I go into a school in the Ronda and I say to them, what would a career in screen look like? They wouldn't have the faintest idea. And it's not because it's the Ronda. It's just because unless your great uncle was in or somebody you were at school with is in that industry, you probably wouldn't think of it. So those industries, I think, have got to do much better job of creating proper career progression. You've said that you have no ambition to be prime minister, but Is there a future role that you'd relish? I really want to build the creative industries. I I think one of the things that the government has done over the last few years is really trash our international reputation. What's the best symbol of Britain? It's our creative industries, whether it's music, it's drama, it's television, it's news broadcasting, so many different elements that we do so amazingly. And it's not just the Shakespeare, Wordsworth, Coleridge, and all the rest. And it's not just our possession, as it were, of the English language, though lots of people are writing the English language today. It's just that sense that we can tell a story. And so that's my big ambition. The other thing I'm really interested in is foreign affairs, because in the words of Sting, the Russians do love their children too. And, you know, I would like us to live in, again, if it doesn't sound a bit too religious, there's a bit in the Bible where it says that the hope is that Justice and peace shall kiss one another. And that's what you want. You want peace with justice and justice with peace. And that's a foreign affairs job. I don't want to depress you, but doesn't our conversation really describe the essence of the whole problem, which is that the British Parliament is beyond reform? 
no, that the way we do no. politics is beyond reform. No, it's not beyond reform. There are some simple things that we could do to reform it. Uh, I mean, I think also in this parliament, we, we've done some things which are good. One of the reasons some people have been expelled in this parliament is because we set up an independent complaints and grievance scheme 15 years ago when I arrived in it, or 20 years ago when I arrived in the House of Commons, if an older MP touched a woman's backside, nothing would have been done. It would have been swept under the Pugin carpet. That's not true today. So we have made changes, and maybe we're more punitive than we were in the past. Did you make changes, or were you dragged kicking and streaming from a, an outraged public? I would say that some of us dragged us towards that, and that's good. And sometimes we, I, the whole of us, we were reluctant. But look, we've got to change attitudes in Parliament, and I think we've got to change personnel. There was a government chief whip, Tory chief whip. I'm not going to give you the name, and there have been so many in the recent years that that's not giving away anything, who said to me, look, there are some people in this Parliament who should never have been selected to fight a council seat, let alone a parliamentary seat, let alone get into Parliament on the rising tide of the last general election. And I hope that some of the personnel will change. I like a, a Barney. I'm happy with a Barney. You know, in the kerfuffle of exchanging views, you can sometimes get to a more enlightened position for everybody. But most of the time, you really want cooperation across the floor of the House. Is there anything in play at the moment amongst MPs that looks like something that could bring about reform in the way we are governed? I think the issue is now for the next general election. It's for the political parties. I, you know, I've written a manifesto, in a sense, for reform. And I hope that my party, I hope all the political parties will pick up some of these issues. I know there are people in the Liberal Democrats as well who are interested in some of these issues. And there are Conservatives too. I hope all the political parties pick up all of these things. I mean, how bonkers is it that the Prime Minister theoretically has an independent advisor on ministers' financial interests who isn't independent and can't actually investigate a breach of the ministerial code without the Prime Minister agreeing. How bonkers is it that we have tougher rules for backbench MPs on what they have to declare by way of hospitality and gifts than we do for ministers? There are some things we could change so easily. And I really hope that everybody at the next general election will vote for people who are determined to change the way we do politics. Sir Chris Bryant, MP, all power to your elbow. Thanks for Thank talking with us. Thank you very much, John. That was Sir Chris Bryant, Labour MP for Rhonda and Shadow Minister for Creative Industries and Digital. If you'd like to find out more about Chris's book, it's titled Code of Conduct, Why We Need to Fix Parliament. And there's a link in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. To get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk or look for Snowcast on Facebook and Instagram. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Listener.